Amen. Uh, If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. It's our passage this morning. Kids are with us during, the, during our service this morning, and it's a joy to have them with us. And we do it this week, because on the fifth, those odd, rare fifth Sundays of that only a few instances throughout the year, we just have kids here during the service, because it helps us in sort of staffing issues in the nursery and children's church, and it gives people who work or minister in those areas a break. So, it's kids crying, that's all right. We love kids having, having kids in the service, but those rooms are available upstairs if you do need them. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you might help us as we give thought to the cross of Jesus Christ, as we give thought to the ascension of Jesus Christ, and as we give thought to what we see here in this passage. Help us by your Spirit to understand through your Spirit's divine illumination. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
In, in one of his many conversations with the religious teachers in Matthew 16, Jesus engages with the religious teachers and has some lessons there with regards to interpreting objective reality. He says, he points them to the skies. You can look at the skies and you know that if the sky is red, then you know that it's going to rain. You see with your own eyes, you're able to interpret, and yet you perceive these things in the ministry of Jesus, you hear of his teachings, and yet you are not able to take two things together and come to the conclusion that this is, in fact, the Son of God, that the kingdom of heaven is now here. So turning to our, our attention to the book of Acts, the book is grounded and propelled forward by the event of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the apostles are witnesses to this event, to this reality. And soon after we see the ascension of Jesus Christ, we see that it gives way to prayer. And along the way in this passage, we're also reminded of one horrifying objective event in its interpretation, namely the betrayal of Judas and how the objective reality of Jesus Christ and his ascension requires a twelfth apostle. So firstly, devotion to prayer grounded in the ascension. Again, in verse 12, it says that they, the disciples, or the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Then verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. By the way, what an encouragement it is that we see here the brothers of Jesus who once denied Jesus as the Son of God, who once did not believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and now here they are with the apostles. Let that be an encouragement to us to continue to pray fervently for those that we desire to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here are the disciples or the apostles with others praying to the Father, praying to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what Christ Jesus commanded them to do, because of what they had witnessed, and that is the ascension of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 9, there's the, the event of the man who was born blind, and then, which leads to sort of a disinterrogation where the religious teachers take him in because they don't believe that he was actually born blind. They don't believe that this man, Jesus, actually healed this man. And then there's other people brought in, and they all identify, yes, this actually was the man who used to beg, who was, was born blind, and now he seems to see they brought in his parents. Is this, in fact, your son? And if he is, was he actually born blind? They say, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. How he's able to see, we do not know. Ask him yourself. Which then leads to this lesson on interpreting objective reality that he gives to the religious teachers. This man says in John 9.31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So here's a man who was once born blind. Jesus heals him. Right, Something happens to him, something miraculous, something that he has no part in. 
and he lays out the facts to his religious teachers. And he puts all these things together, and he comes to the conclusion that certainly this man who healed him must have the ear of God, because otherwise God would not listen to him and restore his sight. The conclusion is, therefore, Jesus must be sent from God. And if you believe that Jesus must be sent from God, well, then that always requires a response. Moments before, they're coming together in this upper room to pray together. They had witnessed Jesus ascend unto heaven. And we talked last week that this is important for gospel witness. And here they are, in response to his ascension, they are praying together. And because Jesus Christ is ascended, God listens, not only to them, but God listens to our prayers. Because we have faith in Jesus Christ. That means that Christ sweetens the prayers of his saints so that whether the prayers are generated by trial or affliction or need, that God always listens to the prayers of his people with an ear to respond because of what Christ Jesus has done for them on the cross. So because Christ is exalted, the apostles pray. Those who are with them pray. Because Christ is exalted, we also can and should pray. And what a fitting response that after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the response is to pray. And here we see that prayer is not sort of this passive waiting, but the command from Jesus to the apostles was to wait. Wait until the Spirit descends. And their waiting, what it looked like for them, was to pray. And there we see that praying is not sort of this passive waiting, but very much a proactive kind of waiting. The Christian life isn't a passive life. And yes, why we passively receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by placing our faith in Him, we're never called to live a passive life. There's always action. There's always something to do. And one of the things that we are called to do is to pray. There's never a season where it doesn't lend itself to praying. There's always a need to pray. So the apostles, they waited by praying, and it tells us they devoted themselves to prayer. It shows us at least a few things about this kind of prayer that they devoted themselves to. One, that it was persistent. Between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the descent of the Spirit of God, it was about ten days. And that they devoted themselves to prayer tells us that they didn't cease praying. They continued to come together to pray, to pray, and to pray until the Spirit of God descended. This devotion to prayer is, is also marked by by one's heart being engaged in it. Right? An athlete who is devoted to his, to his sport doesn't approach his sport in a casual manner, but he gives himself to it. He practices it. He's fully engaged in it. So in the same way, we can expect that these apostles 
and those others who joined them were not casually approaching prayer, but it tells us they devoted themselves to prayer. And this devotion to prayer is marked by this ceaselessness. They weren't going to stop praying. They were going to continue to pray and pray and pray, even though at that time Jesus had ascended, and at that time the religious teachers who hated Jesus most likely also did not like any of his followers. So they had their enemies, but that wasn't going to stop them from praying and meeting together. And while certainly this is a word for us in our individual and personal lives, this is also a word for the church as a whole as well. They are coming together as disciples of Jesus Christ to pray to the Lord in one accord. There's a great blessing in unity that comes when God's people join together with one accord and praying unto the Lord. And while our prayers should be persistent, right, even the Bible says to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean that you're praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the question is, is your life characterized by prayer? Do you pray regularly? Do you pray often? We continue to pray, we continue to persist in prayer, even when, especially when we don't know the answer to something, when we're looking for answers, we don't know what the next step is, when we're looking for wisdom, when we're looking for guidance, no matter the situation that, it, that we find ourselves in, we continue to pray and pray. The Bible says, ask, you will receive, seek, you will find, knock on the door, will be open to you. We're given the example of the persistent woman who continued to plead for justice until she received it in the same way we ought to persist in prayer. Praying and praying and praying because there are always reasons to pray. And yes, there are moments, and certainly many, many seasons in our lives, when we don't feel fully engaged in our prayers. Sometimes it feels like we're way ahead of our hearts, and it feels like we're sort of trying to drag our hearts and get it to catch up to where we are at. But just because the heart isn't engaged in prayer doesn't mean you stop praying. Whereas the Puritans would say, pray until you pray. Pray until the heart catches up. Pray until you finally feel engaged in your prayers. And just because you don't feel the sense of engagement or heart in your prayer doesn't mean that God does not listen to you. And that just be an encouragement to you if you struggle with your heart catching or up with you when you are prayer, when you are praying. The Puritan Matthew Henry says that those who are in the best frame to receive spiritual blessings are those who are in a praying frame. You put yourself in the best position to receive the spiritual blessings of the Lord Jesus when you are in a praying frame. So let us pray. Let us persist in praying. Let us not cease in praying. Let us with one accord pray unto the Lord. For the gospel of Jesus Christ, for people to be saved, for our loved ones to be saved, for Jean and the Smiths, for Susan as she ministers to her mom, for missionaries that we continue to support. 
the objective reality of the ascension, witnessed by the apostles, and surely testified to those who were not present to witness it, urged them to devote themselves to pray. It's the reason why verse 12 begins with then. After the ascension, then they returned to Jerusalem, met in the upper room, and prayed. Secondly, Judas's betrayal properly interpreted. Verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of the persons was all in all, and all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. So here the Apostle Peter gets up, and what's helpful for us is that he grounds this sad and tragic experience in Scripture. Right? Notice what he says. He says that the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning these things. He said that the Scripture had to be fulfilled. So right there he points to the unity, the harmony between the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit speaks through individuals and he inspires them to write the sacred Scriptures. And here we see that the Holy Spirit inspired King David the psalmist to write something concerning Judas in this tragic event. Namely, Psalm 141, verse 9, the psalmist there had written, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of David, or writing with the pen of David. Now certainly David most likely did not know, he was speaking of his own experience, but he could not have known that he was speaking also of the Messiah who was to come, and the tragedy that he would experience on behalf of sinners. But surely God did, of course, Surely the Holy Spirit did. And here the Apostle is in helping us to interpret Old Testament Scripture to help us to see that that passage there in Psalm 41 was speaking about Christ. The Gospel story is, tragically, a story of betrayal. Namely by the disciple Judas was a ringleader of sin, who became a guide to lead others to arrest Jesus, the Son of God, and ironically would even go to Jesus there, the Garden of Gethsemane, and approached him and kissed him on the cheek as a sign of respect. Judas would walk with Jesus, who had ministered with Jesus, who had heard of Jesus' teaching, who was seeing the miracles of Jesus, and most likely was given the power by the Spirit to go and minister to people and perhaps heal others, just as Jesus sent out the twelve at some point in his ministry. And it becomes a story of betrayal. And why did it have to be a story of betrayal? I mean, the religious teachers hated Jesus, hated him so much that they wanted Jesus dead. They probably could have found some way 
to have Jesus executed without the help of Judas. Right? But that's not how it happened. Someone from within his own circle betrayed Jesus into the hands of sinners. Why must it be a story of betrayal? Here's a few reasons why I think why. Firstly, because it shows us the depths of our unbelief and the depravity of the human sinful heart apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Let us not be so quick to look at Judas and point the finger because they could have been any one of us. Anyone is capable of betraying another person, even if he should be the Son of God. Why must it be a story of betrayal? I think it shows us our desperate need for forgiveness and salvation. If the heart of Judas shows us the depravity of his own heart, and the kind of depravity that is that our hearts are capable of, then it also helps to illumine to us the graciousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shows, it helps us to be that much more appreciative and thankful for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, this betrayal shows us how far Jesus would go in order to save us from our sins. That Jesus, the Son of God, descended from heaven to earth to live amongst people and to have amongst his closest ranks one who would eventually betray him, that he knew would betray him. He even warned his disciples that one of them would betray him. So it wasn't any surprise that Judas would betray him, and yet he was willing to continue to go in that direction and suffer that betrayal to show us the lengths that he would go to in order to save us from our sins. And fourth and lastly, this experience of betrayal shows us, or makes, rather, Jesus that much more of a sympathetic high priest. Because he's well acquainted with suffering. Because he knows the ache of betrayal. That whatever sufferings and trials that you endure in your life, Jesus sympathizes with those, with those feelings, with those emotions, because he knows what it is to suffer. He knows how to be sympathetic towards us in our sufferings and even in our sins. Then we have sort of this this editorial comment about Judas's death. It tells us he acquired a field and then he fell on fell into that field. And then we have sort of this explicit rated R description of what happens to the body of Judas. Not only that, but it tells us that everybody would have known about it. First and foremost, because Jesus' crucifixion was a public crucifixion. Everybody knew about Jesus. Everybody heard about Jesus. And certainly they would have heard of Jesus' crucifixion. And they would have also heard of Jesus' resurrection. And in the same way, they would have also heard about Judas, 
how did Jesus get to the cross, people would have heard about Judas. Well, Judas, one of his own, betrayed him. They would have known of his betrayal, and now we also see they will have, would have also known, or they came to know, about his death. It says that it became, to know, known, became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that then the field where Judas died came known to be called the field of blood. This is a place that nobody wanted to even get close to. This has now become sort of this cursed ground where Judas died. Now, the Gospel of Matthew records it a little bit differently than the way that Luke here in Acts records it. Matthew in his Gospel says that Judas tried to give the money back that he received right, to, at the temple to the religious teachers. The teachers would go on then to buy a field, and Judas ultimately hung himself. But Luke writes here that in this very field that was purchased, Judas actually fell headlong into that field, and there he died. Then our job is to try to harmonize those two descriptions, speaking of the same event. And the way to harmonize it is that most likely what happened is that Judas, yes, tried to give back the money, but still in agony over what he had done and what he admitted to was betraying innocence, an innocent man, most likely went then into that field and hung himself somewhere on that field, and at some point his body fell upon the ground and burst open. And the reason why this is worth mentioning is because of the intent of the author. In Matthew's gospel, his intent throughout his gospel is to show the heart of the religious teachers, that they are haters of Jesus Christ. And we see then in his description of this event between Judas and Matthew, or, or rather the religious teachers, is how the religious teachers became in league with Judas that led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, whereas in Luke he intends to show something different, and that is the judgment of God over this man's life. He writes it here as, an, as a way to, uh, to elicit sort of a, this emotive response to elicit a kind of fear. Sort of a, let us be, have a healthy fear concerning God's judgment. So Peter grounds even this tragic event in Scripture quoting Psalm 69, 25, speaking about the desolate place, and that no one be there to dwell in it, speaking of where Jesus or where Judas died. And then the call to take, let another one take his office. And before leaving this point, a couple of things for us to consider. Firstly, in the same way that Peter grounds this event in Scripture, it would be most helpful for us to ground our experiences in Scripture. Now, certainly the Scriptures do not speak to every single situation or 
to our every situation that we go through in this life, but it always has a word for our situation and trials and situations in our life. There's always a word. There's always a promise for us to take hold of, to believe, no matter what the situation is that we find ourselves in. And in this way, we provide a stability underneath our feet. In in exercise, they say that one of the most important body groups that you should be exercising is your core because it is your core that provides stability for your body. If you're finding yourself tossed to and fro constantly by the situations of life, whether they're big or if they're very small, what you need is a stable core that comes from the regular exercise of reading the Word of God and applying the Word of God and looking to the Scriptures and asking, what does the Scripture say? Second thing for us to consider, but specifically with regards to the tragedy of Judas and his turning aside to his own way, abandoning the apostles, abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ, For a better part of a year, I was doing ministry with a group of guys in a church, and there was one particular guy who committed a heinous sin. When confronted about it, he had no desire to repent. Ultimately, he ruined his relationships, even his closest relationships, abandoned the church, abandoned his friends, abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ, became an apostate. And to this day, as far as I know, it's not walking with the Lord. And my friends and I, we were sad, not only that, but there was this sort of this fear in us because what we saw, what we witnessed in this man's life that we called a friend, we realized that could have been us. Like what's happened to him, that could have been me as well. And the only way to prevent yourself from walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ is to respond humbly towards sin. It's helpful for us to go before the Lord regularly and ask, what is there in my heart, Lord Jesus, that I need to repent of? What idols might there be in my heart that I need to destroy? Or when a brother or sister lovingly comes to you, and point out a sin or an idol in your heart, the best response is a response of humility. Because it is humility that will lead to repentance. So let us respond humbly when it comes to sin, sin in our own hearts. And while Luke gave us these details to elicit a kind of response that is a a sort of a, a fear towards the judgment of God. At the same time, those who are in Christ Jesus, yes, we respond humbly to the sins that we need to repent of, but at the same time, we need no fear or need not have any fear of the judgment of God because Christ Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. So yes, there should be a healthy fear of sin, but there should be no fear of judgment and punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So having considered the event of this betrayal of Jesus on the part of Judas and turning aside from the honor and the responsibility of apostleship, the apostles feel it necessary to find a twelfth apostle. That takes us third and lastly to the apostleship grounded in historical events. Again, verse 21 Peter says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there could not have just been anyone. There needs to be a particular individual who could replace Judas. Now, by the way, Judas is not replaced because he died or killed himself. Judas is replaced because he went to his own way. Later on, when James, one of the apostles, is martyred, they're not looking for another replacement. They're not looking for a replacement because James didn't turn aside from the gospel. So looking for another to replace Judas because Judas went his own way. And this needed to be somebody who had been with them from the very beginning, who had witnessed the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John the Baptist, who has witnessed Jesus throughout his ministry, who had witnessed the resurrection or the resurrected Jesus and saw the ascended Jesus. And why is this so important? The reason why it is so important is because this person was going to function as a witness. He needed to be a witness to the things that he had seen and heard in the life of Jesus. In other words, this could not be somebody who taking these events and internalized them, and sort of vomited out his own interpretation of the events. But no, this person needed to present these events and the teachings of Jesus objectively and accurately. That's why First John, there the Apostle John says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Right? That's what we have seen and heard, which we have touched, which we have handled concerning the word of life. Right? We proclaim this to you. They're not permitted to interpret these events and the teachings of Jesus subjectively, but to present them as they are. So they needed someone who would be a witness and tell the truth. Someone who would go out into the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell people, hey, let me tell you about the man who was born blind and received his sight. Let me tell you of what Jesus taught in the synagogue. Let me tell you about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Let me tell you about how Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding feast. Let me tell you about how Jesus sat down to eat with sinners. Let me tell you about the heart of Christ. Let me tell you about his grace. Let me tell you about his compassion towards sinners. Let me tell you about his death. Let me tell you about his life so that you might believe. They needed someone who knew without question that this man was indeed the very Son of God. Not someone who was going to go out and tell people about their subjective experience. Right, when you receive a letter from someone, right, your job is to try to discern what is the writer's intent in writing the letter to you. What was his original intent? 
right? You're not going to take that letter and try to interpret it in whatever way you want to make it mean something that it never was intended to mean. So in the same way, this witness was going to tell the world of what Jesus has said and done so that people might believe in Jesus. And this doesn't change with our witnessing today. Just because we were not there with Jesus, to see Jesus with our own eyes, to hear him with our own ears, doesn't change the objective reality of Jesus Christ and all that he had said and done. If I, we, right, as you know, we had a terrible storm, uh, I don't know, a week ago or a week and a half ago, trees have fallen everywhere. Right, and by our house, one large tree fell and almost knocked down a, a, a power line. Now, if I told you about that, if I told this person, hey, this is what happened in our house, and this person then goes on to tell this person, and this person goes on to tell that person, and that person goes on to tell that person, and goes on and on and on, right, the actual event doesn't change. It hasn't changed. Right? You can go and see that the, the tree has fallen down. You can see for yourself. Now, of course, when we tell one person to another, to another, to another, sometimes the story changes. But that is also why we have the written word. So that we may be certain of the things that Jesus has said during his life and what Jesus had done with his life. So that even though we stand here today as witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we stand here and we witness on account of what we know had actually happened based on the faithful witnesses of these apostles who then went on to teach others and transfer the knowledge and understanding and interpretation to others, who then went also on to teach others. Even Luke, in his purpose for writing the book of Acts, writes to Theophilus so that he may be certain concerning the things that he had been taught and he had heard. Which also speaks to our certainty. The Lord Jesus, through his word, wants us to be certain about what we have come to believe and know concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be certain concerning the things that have been written for us, that have been taught to us, concerning what Jesus Christ had done on the cross, hence why the word is written for us. The Lord wants us to be certain concerning the transformation of our lives. He doesn't want us to be sort of up in the air wondering, are we, have we actually believed in the gospel? Have we actually been saved? The word is written for us so that we may know the kind of people that the gospel produces so that we can look at it, so that we can read it and study it and confidently say, yes, while there is work to be done in me, the kind of people that the Scriptures describe on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this characterizes my life. And it is not arrogant to admit to yourself that my life is characterized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I, in fact, am saved. 
that I am walking with the Lord. The Lord wants us to be certain of those things. The Scriptures and the Lord Himself also want us to be certain with regards to God's love for us. They say that a child, and studies show this as well, that a child, especially a daughter who grows up in a home without love and attention and affection, will go on to seek it elsewhere. And they'll experience great emotional turmoil and distress for the better part of their life as they wander from one oasis to another, to another, to another, never finding the thing they never had and should have had from the very beginning. The Lord would not want us wandering from one oasis to another, to another, to another. But He wants us to be certain that he does indeed love his own, that he does indeed love you. And that is why we have the sacred scriptures, so that we may be certain of God's love for us, so that we may be certain as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we consider what Christ Jesus endured on behalf of sinners, so that we may be sure of God's love for us, so that we may be confident in saying, Christ Jesus died for me. If the cross was this subjective experience, then we would have no degree of assurance that Christ Jesus loved for us. But Christ Jesus did and die, did die for sinners. Jesus Christ did indeed rise again from the dead. In order that those who place their faith and trust in Him, in His life, death, burial, and resurrection, they may be confident and sure that they have forgiveness of their sins so they may be confident in knowing that they have eternal life, so that they may be confident in knowing that they have the love of God abiding in them. Of these things, we can be certain of. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, your great grace abounds towards us. And we don't know this because of some feeling that we have inside, but we know this because of the testimony of your scriptures. You have given to us your words so that we may be certain. And in addition to your word, you have also given to us your spirit so that we may be certain of this, of these things. Even the word tells us that the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Lord, but sometimes it is a struggle to believe what we know to be true. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to trust in what Christ has done for us. Help us to walk with, this, with a confidence that can only come from knowing that Jesus Christ died for us. 
Lord, give us the grace. Help us to have, to exude that confidence, Lord. No matter what season or trial we find ourselves in. We thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the faithful witnessing of the apostles through which you have established your church, who went on to establish other churches, who went on to entrust their teachings to others, who then entrusted their teaching to others. And we find ourselves here today because others before us were faithful. Lord, may, be, may we be faithful also in our witnessing, not only through our lives, but also with our voices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.